Welcome to the Sharing the Heart of the Matter podcast, where we look for inspiration on the journey to discover what matters most. I'm Wynne Leon, and in this episode, I'm with my co-host, Dr. Vicki Atkinson, and we're talking with Lois Ruloffs about her book, Marv Taking Charge, a story of bold love and courage. In this incredibly beautiful book, Lois writes about her husband's decision not to seek treatment for small cell lung cancer and how that choice set up a very intentional life for them as they spent quality time saying goodbye to people that were closest to them. Lois, who has a PhD in nursing and is a former nurse educator, talks about the patient's bill of rights and the importance of going into decisions about treatment, knowing what the priorities are. Lois brings us along on the road trip she and Marv took after his diagnosis to visit family and friends to give cherished last hugs. Marv lived well beyond the doctor's estimate of just a few weeks to give them six wonderful months together. We talk with Lois about the rapid decline at the end and take in her advice for anyone going through a similar end of life process to lean on the beliefs that give them strength, gather their support system, and to sign up for hospice from day one for the care and support they'll need. Lois tells us how Marv gave her a gift from the beginning by saying, you'll be fine, I'm the one who's dying, and how she worked to honor him as the person who was dying. This is a great episode filled with love and meaning as we talk about intentionally walking towards the end of life. I know you'll love it. Hi, Lois. Well, hi there. I'm so happy to be here. Vicki and I are so happy to see you today and to be on this podcast talking about your book, Marv Taking Charge, A Story of Bold Love and Courage. Both Vicki and I have just finished reading it. And reading your book, Marv really stands out as an exceptional man and husband. And your marriage really shines as an example of true partnership. And you really served each other and made each other better people and happier people. One of the things was remarkable to me is that Marv was really able to keep going into the fullest sense of who he was up until the last few weeks of his life. Can Mm -hmm. you say more about who Marv was and what it meant to you to have him be present on his journey or adventure in the final days? He was a very solid person. I always considered him kind of my rock because I would vacillate on things or get emotional and I would come home and say, blah, 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 blah. And he would say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he never got riled, except if he talked about special health care for special um, needs children, mm-hmm. then he could get riled. But he was always there for me, Mm -hmm. um, supporting me in whatever I did. Uh, Early on, we discovered that we were very different. I like to laugh and say, you know, all of us were living in the nurse's lodge and we were dating and all going to get married right after we graduated. And it was just a bunch of hormones is our relationship. (laughs) So then you wake up and decide, you know, you like to go uh, to operas, symphonies, um, plays, and he doesn't like to sit. Where does that leave you? So it took quite a few years of adjustment at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then we realized that as opposites, we could support each other in each of our endeavors. 
So I made a lot of enemies at that time. I mean, friendly enemies because they <laughs> said, Lois, don't you have to cook? You know, why are you here? And don't you have to get home to cook dinner? And I never did. And I was the only one of all my groups that Marv did everything. He did the cooking. He did the cleaning. He did the shopping, right? Right. The grocery shopping. Yes. The joke is now five years later, I still don't know my way around a grocery store, but I'm learning. <laughs> but yes, he was always very solid. In fact, somebody said to me last night from our church, there was just something about Marv that he was so, so strong in his faith. So when she was looking for the word and I said, grounded, he mm. was grounded. He knew who he was and he knew what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the trying time for me toward the end, which I didn't anticipate, which was not wise on my part as a nurse, I did not anticipate that he would lose his ability to reason. Mm-hmm. Even though I have a dear nurse sister who died of the same disease and it went to her brain, I still, that did not connect with me that that was going to happen. Right. So when it became time that I couldn't reason with him and it became time that I needed to medicate him for his own comfort, but I couldn't discuss that with him. Like, honey, is it okay now if I just medicate you till you die? Um, So that was hard. Mm -hmm. Um, He was with me really until whatever day that was, he saw a cat on my shoulder. Um, And then he was in and out, you know, one minute, he would be absolutely lucid and making apple crisp. And the next minute he would be seeing a red worm on the living room floor. So going back to Marv being so grounded, I mean, when he got his diagnosis of small cell lung cancer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he knew that he didn't want treatment. He he right. knew to make that choice. Um, can you say more about that choice? And, you know, you talk in your book about uh, being mortal by Atul Gawande and that guidance of quality of time versus quantity of time? I didn't know how he was going to respond when we left for Arizona on that trip. Tell me the trip is you were, you'd gone to the doctor, he'd seen something and removed it, but you hadn't gotten the results yet. Is that right? Right. That's right. correct. And yeah. so, Lois, can I interject with one more thing just for the, the listeners? The timeline for this, this is January when this is happening, right? right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, the timeline was he had a chest pain. I think it was January 2nd. I brought him to the hospital. He maybe had a slight heart attack, um, but they said follow up a week later. So we went a week later, and by that time, he had a little nodule outside his body that we could feel. And so that's what had to be biopsied then. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were waiting for that result. But in Marv's mind, we had this trip planned to Phoenix uh, from Sioux Falls, which is dreadful in the winter weather. And (laughs) we were going to go no matter what. So um, we did not talk about what if this is positive. Um, I for sure thought it was positive because I know cancerous not nodules are hard and there's no pain Mm -hmm. and I could almost roll this between my fingers um so when he came up with and just firmly said there in Dodge City and his gun smoke fun that I know I'm not going to do this 
I, I don't remember being surprised, but I certainly knew not to argue with him. I mean, once he said something, I knew that it was true. Yeah. So he made that choice and he knew he was so clear on that choice. He was so clear. Yes. And way toward the end, I said, have you ever regretted that decision? Right. No, no, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> end of discussion. Because yeah. often doctors don't really present that there's a choice there. Is that, am I saying that yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've worked with quite a few patients, even though I was in education most of my, well, half of my career. And um, I have three of four siblings who died of cancer and in-laws. Um, so I know the experience is often you're in shock when you get the diagnosis and as happened with us, um, and I don't have that detail in the book, the nurse did come in and say, uh, we can schedule you. This was before we even saw the oncologist. She came in the room and said, we can schedule you whatever, Monday for the port and your chemo will be three days a week for three weeks. And Marv right then said, hold it. I'm only here for an oncology referral. Yeah. Uh, but had he not been so certain, mm -hmm. had we perhaps been lay people and we would just, oh, it's cancer, you know, mm -hmm. the big C. And so, I mean, I've heard of so many people where they come home and they're right away, they have this schedule. We have to go for the port. We have to do this, this, and this. And they, they don't have the knowledge to think we have a choice. And I actually got out. Um, I don't think a lot of people know there is such a thing as the patient's bill of rights. Mm. And one of the bill of rights is you have the right to make decisions about your care before and during treatment and the right to refuse care. But nobody presents this bill of rights to you the minute you walk into the office. Mm -hmm. Just just since I've had this out a little over a month, my pastor has given a book out to a couple people who are in a quandary about such things. So yeah. I think the idea that they have choice because it's so fearful. I mean, mm -hmm. with Mark, you've got to come in. You have to. And like with the pulmonologist, when he called us when we were on the road to Arizona, he said to me, your husband doesn't realize, I don't think he realizes how serious this is. You either have to turn back or the minute you get in Phoenix, you have to go to Mayo. Mm. And Mark just, you know, that's not happening. Right. So if we didn't have some prior experience, Marv had a couple cancers before this. Um, if we didn't have prior experience and uh, I can see that we would have just panicked and said, okay, we better turn right back. Because the doctors are doing what they do, which is, this is what I have to offer. And right. sometimes they don't think about the, the option not right. to, right? Right. No, they don't. And they don't always have the time. Mm -hmm. um, so what Atul Gawande writes in his book, Dr. Atul Gawande, and being mortal, is he found out by his own experience with his father, and then in working with a hospitalist, finding out that probably the best thing, not probably, the best thing the doctor can do is say, what are your priorities first? Mm -hmm. What are your priorities? 
he even quotes the hospitalist as saying that if you are talking more time than the patient, you've failed at this. So, you know, how many times do we have that first visit? I mean, doctors think of our healthcare system. They're not being paid to sit and listen to your priorities. They're there because you've, you've got the surgeon, you've got the specialist, you've got the internist. They are on the clock. You can see them, you know, get into their medication or their chart system. They're on the clock. They have so many minutes. So they're not, it's not built in that we have time to chat about those things. Yeah. And sort of speaking of time, given that Marv chose not to seek treatment, for his cancer, it gave you some time to go on this tour or many tours of saying mm-hmm. goodbye to dear family and friends. But mm-hmm. I couldn't help wondering how emotional that must have been, not knowing how much time he had and when the symptoms would show up. Um, how did you find your balance through that? It was not hard because Marv was such a rock through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He did all the driving, except for maybe me relieving for an hour. Um, Our son did some driving once right in the beginning, because we thought this might happen any minute. But Marv would drive a couple thousand miles. He said, we're the ones that moved way far away. And (laughs) all of our family is is not in um, in South Dakota or near South Dakota. So he said, I want to come and say goodbye to you. And then don't bother coming to my funeral. So he gave me explicit instructions that if anybody did show up, I was to pay their hotel bill. So um, I had quite a hefty hotel bill because (laughs) a lot of people showed up. But yes, it really was um, joyful to go with him, watch all the, the very, very meaningful embraces. You know, people were hugging. They all knew it was the last time, except when then then when he didn't die. When we came back again, I thought, you know, just like a patient I had years ago, say, oh, people have already chalked me off, but here I show up again. We we really had a marvelous time on those road trips. And We talked about what's important. I think one thing that happens when you make this decision, you live very intentionally Mm. because you're not having tests or scans. So you don't know, you don't have to worry about the next scan. But on the other hand, you don't know when the next symptom is going to show up. Mm -hmm. But you live intentionally. Okay, who do you want to see yet? What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And what do we have to go over as a couple for, for me to get ready to go on? But uh, we had so many good times. We took three different trips, the last one being um, in June. And then he his last wish was to go to his hometown, Princeburg, Minnesota, for the 4th of July, little town of 500 people. And they had these doings, as they call them. <laughs> Um, every 4th of July with a parade and usually a, a church service, patriotic church service, pulled pork in the Christian school gym afterwards. And he wanted to go one last time. And he did that the 4th of July. And on the 5th of July, his symptoms really increased. And then he died 20 days later. Yeah. So wow. it was really only 
tough, real tough for him for just under three weeks. Just the fact that he was diagnosed on the 30th and he was given a few weeks, but then made it in, he was able to function normally until like July 5th. Yeah. But did you write to, do I have this right? That when you were there, it was a a little bit uh, jarring or alarming for you because he came to you before the, the visit had concluded and he said, I need to go home. And that it he was very clear as he had been throughout. But I think that was a moment that kind of stuck with me because it was, I started to feel that things were changing, you know, kind of in that moment. But I also was, was overwhelmed, you know, as Wynn said about, and I don't know if it's Marv as the social worker, right. And wanting to connect, but there'd been so much connecting. And I wondered, as you wrote about that, if he had gotten to see everyone that he wanted to see before you headed home from that trip, because it was so important. No, he missed seeing one sister. He was one of nine children and two had already passed away, I think at that point. And we were able to see on our trip, we were able to see everybody on our three trips, but we didn't get to Texas. And we had planned to go through Texas mm-hmm. on the way home from Arizona. And of course, we came home from Arizona um, earlier than expected. But he wanted to go to Texas and he was trying to figure out, well, we could just fly there. Well, that wasn't going to work. Uh, well, we could drive there, you know, whatever, 1,500 miles. Uh-huh, we're, we're going to do that when you're compromised. And he he really, it was a, close, a sister he was close with, mm-hmm. and uh, he hadn't been able to give her a last hug. Mm-hmm. They did talk um, several times on the phone, but that was not the same for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he did kind of see that I was getting in the way there because if I would have consented that we could go, we'd have been in the car going. Yeah. But, but no. didn't you write that even your daughter Kathleen said, you know, you can't fly because of all the equipment that was involved and you, you had some support from some other voices. You weren't, you know, bad no. Lois entirely, right? Right. The The nurses were telling us that, but um, that would be a time that Marv would say you listen too much to the nurses. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But speaking of community, I mean, you blogged throughout this entire journey. Um, yes. You had your uh, blogging community. And what did the support of that virtual community provide for you? Oh, it was marvelous. Just really marvelous. Hearing from people in former churches that we had attended when we were in Chicago They announced it in our suburban church, which was the second to the last church we went to in Chicago. And they, uh, we heard from so many people saying they enjoyed his children's sermons, which were years before. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we had that support. We had the support of the pastor from our, our most recent church in Chicago. And then the community here was, um, you know, my neighbors, my church, uh, they they were all just there for me, you yeah. know, just one neighbor was over the other night who read the book and she said, I think I'm the person you're referring to here. And I said, yes, you are. 
I said, but it was in my little notebook that you, um, you know, you did these things. I said, so it made it its way into the book. It it strikes me that it's probably hard for people to know what to say in some circumstances when you're going through this adventure to the end of life. And it's really clear what's happening. But, you know, it's hard, so it's hard to say, how are you doing when they know that? You know, what what is the right thing to for somebody to say? Uh, well, as I have thought about it a lot, um, the best thing I think to say is I don't know what to say. Mm. You know, I don't know what to say because I don't know what you're going through. Mm-hmm. I know I've read a lot. It's that it's not good to say, how can I help? Because people don't want to say, well, I need my vacuum, my living room vacuumed or whatever. Um, and it's better to give a suggestion like, can I bring dinner? Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, can I come over and clean for you? Or can I just dust? Mm-hmm. Uh, making just regular comments. I'm going to the grocery store. What can I pick up for you? Mm-hmm. Um, very specific. Mm-hmm. Can then say yes or no. Um, but if you leave it open-ended, like, oh, you know, I really feel bad for you. I wish I could do something. I don't know what I could do, but no, just say, I don't know what you're going through, Mm -hmm. but I would like to do something and I'm going to the grocery store. What treat could I pick up for you? Mm -hmm. Or I know you love blizzards from Dairy Queen. Could I pick up? What's your favorite? Mm -hmm. That that's helpful. Right. Right. So one of the in the in your book you include a small sign of Marv after he passed. What do you think it's meant for you to be able to write this book? Uh, does it bring him closer? He was very close as I was doing all the early revisions, additions and revisions. Mm-hmm. I would say through the first five go-throughs through the whole book, at least that many, that I would weep, just weep. I sat with my computer on my lap and I had my my little notebook next to me because all that had to be expanded because I just had, had it in little nurse charting, but I had to expand it, put it in, in full sentences. And as I was writing that out, especially the first and second times, I I would write, I have a process notebook. I write what I do every day on the book. And I tears would be streaming down my face as I as I typed. Now I think it really helped me process the whole thing because now I have to be afraid of being too cavalier, like, oh yes, my husband died. I have a book, you know, don't you know? And I found that I was more stoic than I thought I was too, because I I really haven't cried much four or five times total that I've just totally fallen apart. But after um, publishing the book, you mean? No, while um, going through the whole situation Mm -hmm. and also um, afterwards, Mm -hmm. I just am not, I just don't cry that much. Whereas um, I have a sister who cried every night for a year. So then I think, oh, I'm not grieving enough or what's my problem. (laughs) But then Marv told me, you'll be fine. You know, you'll be fine. I'm the one who's dying. You are not. And I think those two sentences, you'll be fine. 
and I'm the one who's dying. You are not. I want you to continue to carry on as you were. That, without me realizing it at the time, has given me great confidence to just do that. Mm -hmm. Lois, one of the things I really enjoyed reading earlier in the book, when you talked about I was chuckling about the definition of labor in your marriage and how you would, you know, go back and revisit periodically to check or renegotiate, you know, your relationship with Mar was so wonderful. But one of the things that he had great regard for you about was you as a student, at, you know, you as a writer, a reader, all of that. And so much so because, as you said, he didn't like to sit and he liked it when you read for him and all of that. So I can imagine as you were charting and working on your book and helping him with his, he had such respect for you and all of your credentials earned and all of that, that it, he kind of gave you license to kind of work through some things with your writing, do you think? Definitely, it was a partnership. And I think he never doubted that I would do the book. I mean, yeah. I, he will do it because I've decided the story needs to be told. So, you know, you will do it. A friend suggested to me, I think Marv told you that to make, to keep you busy after he died. Ah! <laughs> and he said, I don't know if that was his motive, but, but maybe, yeah, it was definitely a, a joint effort and we did renegotiate our, our little thing that we did way back when the kids were little um, separating our chores out. But as time passed, it ended up Marv did everything. I had a few things on the list to begin with, but as he um, had more time, he he just picked up everything on the list. And I just took that for granted because after he died, I had a big learning curve. I hadn't done anything um, about house stuff, Cooking, mm -hmm. grocery shopping, bills, light bulbs, fire alarms. I knew nothing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that, and the other thing that I laugh with my friends now is I don't have a repertoire of recipes. Now, last <laughs> night I had to, to go someplace that was potluck. I had no idea to make. <laughs> and other people, well, I'm going to bring my baked beans. I'm going to bring my spinach salad. I'm like, well, I'm going to bring me. Is <laughs> that? <laughs> Because I don't have that repertoire. And I have one very honest friend, Mariana. I write about her in the book. And she might say, well, Lois, you, you've had a couple of years now to start developing that repertoire. <laughs> so um, you can't play that for me card anymore. But yeah. What what do you think writing this book or and people, what do you hope that it does for people who are going through similar journeys or might face similar decisions? I hope that it gives them some peace of mind that can maybe outline a illness to death trajectory that there will be some similarities with their mm -hmm. own mm -hmm. and that it's possible to survive through that. But you will need to have wherever your strength comes from you will need to have a support system and you will need, and I really want to stress this, go on hospice day one when you know you're not going to be seeking treatment anymore. 
I have, even with my own family, seen that they don't call hospice on time. Hmm. And they don't have that support, even though they've heard from other people, you know, hospice is the best thing. But don't, don't hesitate, hmm. you know, go on hospice. And that's part of gathering your support system. Right. Um, very, very important. Call them all in. Yeah, so it's your story, it's your and Marv's story that's very individual, but maybe it'll help other people set what their priorities are. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Ask whether, and even if they've started treatment, like Marv had one sister who started treatment and she had uh, such a bad reaction, um, she said no more. So, I mean, it's you've got to know your rights as a patient too. Mm-hmm. Um, is there another treatment that's maybe less invasive? Is there a nausea drug, what, what else can I do if I want to proceed with treatment? I need some help with this. Mm-hmm. Um, just to empower, uh, empower the patient. I, I believe I've written down somewhere. I see the theme of the book as autonomy, uh, promoting a, a patient's autonomy, that they know they have a choice to refuse treatment, to live intentionally, and choose whether they want to die in hospice or at home. They have that right to do that. And they can hire help at home. Say say their, their spouse doesn't feel capable of doing whatever. They can hire people mm-hmm. to be there. Uh, but honor the person who's dying. Honor them. That was one thing we always taught in nursing, too, was to... Uh, honor the dignity, help people die with dignity. And um, I wrote about a few times when I failed to do that myself. So I know that you need help. You know, you need help. Mm-hmm. And somebody who's, who has slept. <laughs> yes. Once, once you don't have a good night's sleep, you're, you're um, not up to par. Yes. Yeah. And you had many nights like that, where I, again, one of the candor moments that I appreciated is just your honesty about how sleep deprived you were and that you knew you weren't functioning well and yeah in in incapable really of of thinking critically about anything when you weren't at your best yeah right yeah and I I think that was again silly of me not to know because even in normal life I need to have my rest so how I thought I could get up with Marv every time he was going to smoke during the night. Uh, and then Kathleen said to him that my daughter, Kathleen said, dad, you've got to stay in bed because, you know, my mom's getting tired. And he said, well, she, she should just stay in bed then. She doesn't have to get up with me. <laughs> well, he wasn't safe anymore with a cigarette. So, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. right. And I really appreciated in the end, uh, we had talked about this, but that he, he right away took ownership of his smoking. I asked him, I asked him to do that for his book. I said, I don't want people after you die say, well, he still continued smoking. Why didn't he quit smoking? You know, all this stuff. And he truly um, could not quit with his internal motor that always kept him rolling. Yeah. Um, it was his own way of self-medicating. Uh, 20 cups of coffee a day and cigarettes kept him manageable. Without Mm -hmm. that, he was really wild. 
he did try medication for me. He did try going to the doctor and nothing worked. So somewhere along the line, I had to accept that. And as a nurse, um, I always knew that getting lung cancer was a possibility. And so did he. Mm-hmm. he was very aware of that. What's next for your journey? I will continue blogging. I know that uh, people have asked, what's your next book? And I never intended to write this book. Mm-hmm. My friend Marianne and I sat down soon after I retired and said, we'll write our nursing stories. That was it. And then because I had a book out then, one of the writing teachers I was in a class with said, you have to start a blog because you need a platform. Um, I didn't know what a platform was way back <laughs> in 2008, but I do enjoy blogging and I get a lot of fun feedback from that because people like a little humor and making fun of myself, doing whatever I'm up to. Um, and then just try to stay as as with it, as active as I can. I'm 81 I had a hip replacement last summer, had some problems afterwards. So I know what it's like to not have my mobility. Mm -hmm. So as long as I have mobility and most of my marbles, I hope to just continue. Continue. And I'm very pleased with um, being able to share the book and the donations that I get. um, They're mostly going to hospice. Mm, that's wonderful. And your blog is loisruloffs.com. Correct. Right. And people can find the book on Amazon. Right. Several, several, wherever they look. Okay. Barnes All right. We'll order it for you. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll, look at, we'll put those links on the show notes. Okay. Lois, thank you so much for your time today. Thank okay, you. Well, thank you, Vicki. Thank you, Wynn. It's been delightful. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening. Our music is With a Little Help from My Friends by Lennon and McCartney, performed by Carolyn Leon. Please visit our website at sharingtheheartofthematter.com for show notes and more great inspirations.